0: Open finance could define the future of financial services. That's why 11FS and Plaid have joined forces, creating a report to explore it in greater depth, scrutinizing the lessons learned from open banking and outlining key policy considerations for its implementation. We also consider its impact on financial service providers and the potential benefits to consumers. Download the report for free at bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Wired Card loses 1.9 billion euro. The U.S. banking sector is seeing huge growth despite or because of the pandemic. And Goldman Sachs CEO makes a cameo in billions. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 439 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sam Maul. Today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the heavily bearded David Breyer How are you doing, David?
1: I'm good. Uh, I'm stuck between uh, like isolating and staying inside, and like twenty-eight, twenty-degree weather in, in the UK. So it's uh, it's a little bit of a difficult mix, I have to say, and definitely not prepared for it with this beard, I have to say.
0: And so, in other words, a normal day in Florida where I live. Um, <laughs> Pretty much.
1: Although, you know, you guys in Florida, like, and, and I mean, anywhere that's hot is used to this, right? So like air condition, like you anything over like 10 degrees and our roads start to melt. We're just not prepared for this weather, you know? So, uh, but thankfully in the UK, it will last all of about 72 hours and it will be drizzly again. So, um, you know, we won't get used to it too long.
0: Always something to look forward to. All right. And as this is the new normal, we're joined remotely by awesome guests today, all making their FinTech Insider News debut, but they all have been on other shows from InsurTech to The Breakfast Show. We have Erica Lucas, the CEO of Stitch Crew. Hello, Erica. How are you?
2: Good to see you again.
0: Yeah. And uh, how is lovely Oklahoma City right now?
2: It's great. Uh, Great weather, no wind, which is uh, odd for us during this season, but it's it's all good.
0: All right. And then we're gonna go from Oklahoma City all the way up to Toronto with Gertie Dravershi. He's a co-founder and growth officer, chief growth officer at Flybids. How you doing, Gertie?
3: I'm good. How are you, Sam?
0: I'm I'm doing well. I miss Toronto. I miss the food in Toronto. I miss the weather in Toronto.
3: Yeah, I mean the weather is good. Um the city has entered what they call phase two of COVID. That means the patios are open, um, so people seem to be a bit happier.
0: Well, if it makes you feel any better, in Florida we're at phase about 80, which means we just gave up. <laughs> you can do whatever you want in Florida. And last but not least, we have Jillian Williams. She's investment principal at Anthemist and the head of Black VC NYC. I say that right, Jillian?
4: Yes, you did.
0: I read incredibly well. How is New York City right now?
4: It's doing all right. Um, It's probably just as warm here as it is uh, where David is, but unlike the UK, the US loves AC, so we're surviving pretty well.
0: And oh my God, we talked about Toronto. If I don't get to New York fairly soon and have a real meal other than Applebee's, like you get here in uh, wonderful Jacksonville, Florida, I might just perish. Um, That said, I gained like 50 pounds of COVID weight, so... Again, I need to go to New York and get some real food. All right, with that, let's jump into the news stories. We have so many. The past week has been ridiculous when it comes to stories in fintech and banking. So our first story involves probably the most ridiculous story, and this is around WiredCard. Wirecard says 1.9 billion euros of cash is missing, have now filed for insolvency. The story comes from FinExtra. This is, I mean, this is the one story of the show this week that has just dominated the space. I can't wait for the movie to come out. On this one, shares in Wirecard crashed more than 60% when auditors of the FinTech Group, which was once regarded as a star of the German tech sector, warned that 1.9 billion euro, that's 1.9, something like $2.1 billion US, was missing from its accounts. Their CEO, Marcus Braun, resigned, stating, with my decision, I respect the fact that responsibility for all business transactions lies with the CEO. A couple words that were interesting in that little section, lies. CEO (laughs) resigned. He also has since been arrested on suspicion of inflating the company's balance sheet and revenues to make it appear stronger and more attractive for investors and customers. Three other managers were also under investigation. Wirecard earlier in the week insisted they might have been the victim of a fraud attack. That's me shaking my head, everybody, on a podcast. They've also since said there's a possibility that the missing 1.9 billion euro does not exist. It's another good way to address this. And last but not least, they also fired their COO, who was in charge of overseeing daily operations in Southeast Asia where the possible fraud occurred. Two years ago, the company had a market cap of 24 billion euro. Now it is less than 5 billion euro. Actually, at the time of this recording, God only knows. It's probably owes people the money at this point. And they have filed for insolvency. David, I've got to start with you because, oh, my God, I think that's about the only way to sum this up
1: yeah i think i'm with you i think the um i mean i know we're going to talk about billions later on right but um this would make a hell of a good tv show wouldn't it in terms of whatever has happened here but um it's scary i mean the fact that their internal organization didn't know about any of this cannot possibly be true so uh, i think the the like you say the stories are going to be written about this one for for quite a long time as this all gets really sort of uh uh, unraveled. Um, I mean, this is an interesting one, because I mean, when you sort of dig a little bit deeper into this as well, I mean, these guys have had EY as, uh, as their uh, group auditors for over a decade. So I mean, there's real shades here of um, what was the uh, Enron? En- Enron yeah. uh, There's like real shades of, of that going on here in terms of how they've managed to either conceal, you know, false transactions or I mean, we just don't know what's happened here, but definitely I will be first in the queue for the movie when it comes out, for sure, as you say.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I know you all can't tell by looking at me on this Zoom call, but I originally started in banking as an auditor. And guess one of the plans I audited at Northern Trust was Enron's retirement accounts. And I couldn't understand back in the 90s how a company that was considered the most innovative company in the world could have the worst books I've ever seen in my life in a retirement plan. I have since figured out why the greatest <laughs> most innovative company in the world, Enron, at the time, uh, was like that. I mean, it is amazing that this stuff still happens. The fact, and David, you were polite about that. They went 10 years. They were audited for 10 years, and now we're just finding 1.9 billion euros missing? I mean- Well, well it's, it's interesting, though, like you say. It's like he quit- and then they were like, "Oh my God, there's
1: loads of m- money missing. Oh my God, the money maybe never existed." And it's like the, like say the, the. Uh, I mean, we're all missing Game of Thrones, right? So we need some plot twists. So uh,
0: like some something to keep that void is is good. So Jillian, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective. There's always ripple effects for the industry anytime something like this happens, right? Um, especially when you got a a unicorn sweetheart like Wirecard for this. I mean, what do you think the ripple effects are going to be? When it comes to you know VC money, when it comes to just the industry as a whole,
4: absolutely, and I and I definitely think there will be ripple effects, but I don't think it will necessarily be as big as what we've seen previously. I think the fintech industry market has evolved so much in the last just even decade that I think. Um, it's not just leaning on sort of the one or two outliers that exist. And so I think even if you look back like five years ago at Lending Club, I think that for the most part, FinTech was like payments and lending. And so seeing the public company Lending Club have all of this hair around it, all of a sudden like looked very negative for FinTech in general. Um, But I do think that now maybe this is wishful thinking, but we've definitely sort of matured and, Oh, significantly and hopefully enough that maybe one bad apple won't do that to the entire industry. Again, wishful thinking as a private investor, given it was a public company, um, it doesn't look as negative for VCs, which I think is always the story people look at and sort of look at the VCs allowed this to happen and whatnot and saying it was a public company. They were auditors, as, uh, as um, David said, like for 10 years. Uh, and so it's not sort of just the missteps of the venture capital world.
1: I mean, the interesting thing, obviously, when when Enron happened, was like it didn't just happen to Enron. It like, it, Accenture nearly didn't exist. Do you know what I mean? It's like so, you know, the uh, Arthur Anderson and all of the kind of impacts of that. So, I mean, it is this one uh, definitely
0: is going to. It's got years in it, I think, as as this sort of unravels, Sam. You know, you know, I feel sorry for is our partners though, because there's a lot of fintech companies that were partnered with Wirecard. You know, And so this becomes guilt by association, right? How fast can you unravel and look for a new provider? I mean, I, I had that happen to me one time way back in the day at Thesis. Uh, the folks that actually did the PDF display of your statements basically came to us on a Friday and said, hey, we're going to go bankrupt Monday. Um, uh, excuse me? <laughs> right? You talk about a panic. So from a partnership standpoint, and Erica, you're nodding like crazy. I mean, you you, you run Stitch Group. For those that don't know, we're talking about a great accelerator based in Oklahoma City. And part of what you do as part of that accelerator is introduce your your companies to great partners, right? So they're trusting you for who you actually reference.
2: Yes. I mean, what can I say? I um, I do think it will affect partners, employees. I always have to fight for employees because when when things like this happen, people tend to look at the leadership, which they absolutely should. Um, but then we forget to talk about the impact that those employees um, are going to have and, and, and all of that. I will say I'm a little bit more of a cynic, Jillian, unfortunately. Uh, I, I think that um, how this affects, it's more on the policy side. There's so much scrutiny because companies like this that are uh, already public, uh, because if things like this happened, and when policy gets implemented, they they target everyone as if they're on the same level at this big company. And so it, how it affects fintechs that are still in the very early stages, um, because policy is designed often because of the big guys. I think I, I, I hope you're right, Jillian. I hope that. Um, you know, they if they do pay attention, that they look at it holistically, not as a one-time deal. But I do tend to be more of a cynic just because I listen to some of the debates that are taking place in Washington, D.C. And often they're being led by people that don't even understand the financial system. And so I I do worry from that perspective. um, And I also worry because of the private cynicism with fintechs already. Um, I mean, i Sit on several boards that, because of regulation, already discredit a lot of fintechs and their ability to succeed in the long term. Um, and so, I just worry about the narrative that this might bring. Although we have a lot of we have a lot of things going on in our uh, country and in our world right now, so maybe they won't pay attention.
0: Yeah, I always think a worrying sign is when your CEO starts wearing black turtlenecks and uh, talking like Steve Jobs. Uh, not you, David. David looks horrible in a black turtleneck. I've never it's seen him. It's way in a too neck. hot
1: for it's way too hot for turtleneck. So I'm just saying,
0: yeah, but I, in this case, the CEO kind of bought into the hype quite a bit, right? It does. This I, I said it earlier. This is the Theranos, if you will, of fintech right now with Elizabeth Holmes and what happened there. Uh, everybody, go listen to the podcast um, Blood Money or read the book. It's just incredible story. Where again, the warning signs were there, and with Wirecard, the warning signs were there over the years this isn't something that i think a lot of us were incredibly surprised but i think they were more surprised that it was 2.1 billion dollars that have disappeared um so i again i don't think it's a, a shocker from that standpoint I, again i worry about the other processors in market you know gertie uh you know with fly bits right i mean obviously there, there's other companies like you and that's that's where i get worried as you get that ripple effect and, and the regulators the government officials consumers start looking at you and saying, okay, so how do we trust you for this?
3: Well one thing is with the with the wire card story, I mean it's still coming out. Like it's still we don't know what happened. We don't know we don't only know the two point one billion dollar figure. But one thing that's very important to understand there is did it go missing? Because you know we have like a whole central bank in the Philippines, this money never made it here in the first place. We never entered the system. Or was it never there? And as far as the investors go, it would have been better if you wouldn't miss it and then it was never there because not being there puts a huge question mark in the business model that it was not as profitable as people thought. And what about the other uh, sort of companies that are doing there? the same thing? Uh, do they have the right business model? Because there's already been a huge backlash to FinTech saying they don't have the right business model for scale. And this was one of them that seemed to have figured it out and at some point in time was worth more than the banks in Germany. They were worth more than Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank and, and so on. And now all of a sudden, it turns out they were not. I mean, their business was not as profitable as claimed. And so this creates a, a huge question mark in terms of business model of fintechs no that's that's the biggest question
0: here yeah Jillian, you raised the point if there is a silver line and they were public. you know i mean um that's the one the thing that strikes me i'm gonna go in a segue y'all didn't see coming so here in the states uh i can't remember which kardashian who's the one that's supposedly a billionaire anybody come on david you know huh like, no quiz. You,
1: you were in there straight away. <laughs>
0: was I amazing. couldn't remember her name. The one that has the makeup line, right? But there's been accusations that they way overinflated their earnings too, right? Which comes out when you show yourself going public, um, which then does put you in the whole the regulatory side of the house is there to protect the end consumers, the end investors when it comes to something like that. So if you ever didn't see a segue coming, everybody, I just compared Kylie Kardashian to Marcus Braun at Wirecard. But it works. We're all going to go with that. It works. It sounds good. David, I'm going to give you the last um, say on this one because you know, you're know you're the CEO of the company I work for, that I took the leap to work for. You're the face of the company. Um, it gets back to what you talk about over and over and over again, culture but trust, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think with this, it's, again, it's uh, inherently no organization is bad. Like, I don't think any no big bank and no fintech has the moral high ground. And probably this is what this is showing, right? We've seen pretty, uh, pretty bad practices from gigantic organizations. And we're seeing pretty bad practices being replicated in some smaller ones. Um, I do worry that I don't think this will go down as, as just as simple as the CEO defrauding a bunch of people. Because as much as, I mean, like at 11FS, I would have to coerce at least seven or eight other people into doing this. In order to make this happen, let alone the regulator and getting it through the regulator for a decade, let alone the uh, people who are auditing your accounts for a decade. So, while um, uh, you know the CEO will definitely all take the brunt of it, if this is if it does transpire that it is a much more organised thing, then there's a lot of people that will have had to have been involved in this to make this happen. So, uh, yeah, HBO make that series; it's going to be amazing.
0: Yeah, just and this isn't this isn't something new, folks. Um, if you go back and read your history books to the time I was talking about with Enron, go look what happened to Arthur Anderson on the auditing side of the house, right? And in this case, you've got ten years worth of financial audits that took place. So I think there's going to be some scrutiny at uh, a couple of audit firms that will be nice to. I won't name their names, even though David did earlier in the show. Just saying, um, I, I think those. Those effects. That's what I'll be curious to see. What the German regulatory side and uh, um, comes in at with Wirecard and maybe a couple of other organizations. Just, just on one thing. I hope
1: the. I mean, there are a lot of companies who are built on uh, Wirecards. Like I, I hope. Uh, I mean, for players like Anna Money and Soldo and you know, the players out there who are probably in quite a precarious situation now. These guys are doing great things in the market. Hopefully, this doesn't affect them. Um, but we'll, we'll only know as this plays out a hundred percent
0: partner carefully, people really do be careful. Uh, with that, we, we need to take a short break and hear a word from our sponsors. So we'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Jack Henry digital, the pioneer and creator of personal digital banking that helps community financial institutions strategically differentiate their digital offering from those of mega banks, big techs and fintechs. So how do they do it? With the Bano Digital Platform, a complete 100% API-enabled open digital banking platform, you get beautiful lightning-fast native apps for your customers and members and cloud-based core-connected back office tools for your employees. Visit Bano.com to schedule a demo. That's B-A-N-N-O.com. Okay, with that, let's get back to the show. Okay, now we're going to actually take a look at what's happening in the U.S. banking space. Again, this has been a crazy week. From a banking and payment space over here on this side of the pond the u.s banking sector is seeing huge growth despite or because of the pandemic there are a couple of stories we want to focus in on this section first one is u.s bank deposits are up two trillion u.s dollars according to cnbc and the challenger bank market is growing super fast as more and more challenges are being launched and gaining traction, such as Current, which this week launched over 1 million customers, and incumbents like Citi are gaining more digital customers than ever, growing by 270,000 accounts in May. So think about this. A record $2 trillion surged into cash and has hit the deposit accounts of U.S. banks since the coronavirus first struck the U.S. market in January, according to the FDIC. So this wall of money that's flowing into banks has no precedent in history. In April alone, deposits grew by $865 billion, more than the previous record of any entire year. The gains were all driven in one way or another by the response to the pandemic. Stimulus funding, the Federal Reserve launched an unlimited bond-buying program, and an uncertain future prompted everyone from individuals to global corporations to hoard cash. More than two-thirds of the gains went to the 25 biggest institutions, and on cue, everybody on Zoom shakes their head, according to the FDIC. Now, this has been mostly due to PPP loans, a $660 billion effort, the majority of which landed in the biggest banks to help facilitate the loans. The largest retail customer base's personal savings hit a record 33% rate in April. Um, you know, this is weird. I'm going to be honest, uh, this, this news story, because I, I will flat out say it: Americans as a whole suck at savings. I'm generalizing. Um, I'm generalizing. But we love credit cards. I'm not generalizing there. I think the average credit card count is something like six um, uh, per family. I don't even want to look at my my wallet. And you know we have a retirement crisis that's coming up um, of folks not saving, and independent upon their four hundred one k's. I mean, is anybody else surprised by the the, the savings rates that we're seeing in the U S. Yeah, Jillian.
4: So I'm not, and it's for a few different reasons. One, to your point, Americans love to use credit cards and spend, but at the same time, everyone's kind of been forced to stay home. And so while, yes, e-commerce has taken a tick up significantly, um, a lot of people still would shop in person or get food, et cetera. And so people were kind of forced to cut back their spending. And then, as you mentioned, on the consumer side, you have the stimulus check that went to many people, including those I mean, obviously to a lot of people that also are now unemployed and who probably needed that additional money, but also the people who were employed. And so many people who are unemployed are actually making more money than they were in, in when they were employed. And then people that are unemployed are just getting an additional $1,200 as well. And I know like one person that was retired that got a stimulus check. And so I think even how they figured out where this should go, um, didn't necessarily make sense to me personally, but that's another question. Um, I will say the savings rate, though, as you said, the thirty-three percent—that increase is massive. I think the normal savings rate is like six to eight percent. So right. for it to almost triple, um, or more than triple. Sorry, quadruple um, is extremely, extremely massive, um, and. Uh, yeah and so I think you have that on the consumer side and then of course obviously the PPP loans on the other side as well
1: just for my context on this one then so explain to me what's happening here because like just for like a guy sitting in the UK they they sent everybody a check is that right so
4: if you made I think it was like a hundred thousand dollars was the a hundred thousand dollars was the threshold um you just got sent a check or it was directly deposited into your account.
1: Okay, and and what was that for?
4: (laughs) Help you try to. I think it was typically to try to help encourage spending and to keep the economy stimulated. Um, However, more more people just ended up hoarding the cash.
1: Yeah, I mean, it 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 sounds like. um, Did you guys ever play Monopoly? And it was like (laughs) second prize in a beauty contest. Like the whole country gets like eleven hundred dollars type thing. It's an interesting way about going about it, isn't it? Because I mean, most places would trying to figure out what they would invest that money into. But inevitably, it comes down to it's like, should we just give everybody some money? And um, it is, I mean, I guess that explains quite significantly why that money is now, you know, rolling through to savings. At least some of it is going through to savings, I guess would, would uh, be the point. Because um, in most instances, if you just randomly gave people that amount of money, it would, as you say, it would stimulate the economy in terms of people going and spending on something silly. So um, maybe this is a good sign. Not everybody's... uh you know, buying a new set of Jordans and stuff, they're uh, like, um, you know, they're saving that money and and using it effectively.
4: But I guess one thing I'll add on to that is I still think we're in, from an economic standpoint, pretty early days of what the repercussions from this crisis will be. I think a lot of people haven't had to pay rent and and haven't been able to be evicted. Um, And even though we've started to open up businesses, it's still sort of TBD in terms of what reopening looks like and if it will go back to closing down. And so I think once we, and then also a lot of the companies that got PPP loans will be running out of that cash as well soon. And so once a lot of that happens, it'll be interesting to see then what actually happens both on the business and consumer side in terms of, um, economics and cash flow.
0: Man, I always come back to that saying, you know, that saying about technology that, uh, the technology is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Um, man, that applies to COVID in the U S right. So Jillian, you're in New York. You guys have gone through this shutdown and everything else. I'm in Florida where it is. It is bonkers. I think that's a, that's a good UK technical term bonkers. Mm, it um, it's good song by dizzy rascal. Everybody go back and listen to that. Probably 2008. Yes. um, and we're seeing ripple effects, if you will, of COVID and its impacts on economies working its way across Texas right now, Arizona, um, Tulsa, you know, where you're at, Erica, you guys have had ridiculous numbers. Um, I think what makes me nervous about this is, Jillian, you made a good point. We don't know yet. August is going to be interesting, right? You know, what? what are the, what's the um, default rate on mortgages? You know, what's it going to be like when there's not a stimulus check? What's the default rate on rent. What's that how about your car payments that got deferred, right? If you're making, you know, less than a hundred grand, if you're the average US salary is only like sixty six thousand. I mean, that's the majority of the people in the US. What's life going to be like in a month or two when those checks aren't coming through? Right. And and you're having all kind of issues like here in Florida with filing for unemployment and actually getting your checks. And so that's where I think, you know, I, I'll just say this. In my personal opinion, I think if you were decently well off and doing okay. You're probably still doing okay if you're in the other categories life life is sucky right now and it's going to get suckier think that's a technical term
1: i think i think to jillian's point though uh, it's i mean from an individual perspective i mean it's like weathering us i mean i, I know uh, having spoke about this to 11fs uh and the the team more broadly the the virus is Is like five percent of this problem it's the economic meltdown that happens i mean uh, uh, purely from a uk perspective i mean we're still feeling the the effects of the 2008 financial crisis that actually only tanked the economy by six percent uh and it took a year to get to that six percent it reached twenty percent gdp dropout in april alone in the uk uh, the, the ramifications, the impact of this from a, a financial markets perspective, and everything that sort of falls off the back of that, it's going to be felt for decades, I think, in terms of it. So it, it is, it is horrific. I think you know governments have got a a very, very hard uh, thing to balance. They're balancing killing a lot of people and killing the economy, and I, and I think they're trying to balance those two things, and in some instances, getting that
0: very wrong. What's it like in in Toronto? I'm really curious Gertie, because I compare Toronto a lot to New York it has that feel to it it's, a, it's the most American Canadian city I've ever been to in my life
3: yeah absolutely I mean it's a, it's a very diverse city I love it you mentioned about food before I mean it's just great there's nothing if you cannot find it here I don't think it's it exists uh, so I, I really really love this city. Um, the situation here is very comparable. I mean, we had a, a lockdown, as you mentioned. Uh, we are now about to see the repercussions about various levels of governments not being able to, municipalities not being sort of sort of running to the ground because they haven't been able to collect and they're spending. Um, then you have the provincial, which is our equivalent of the state in, 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 the, in the U.S., and then you have a federal government that's just essentially giving out money, um, as we mentioned before, to people to try and sort of keep them afloat. Um, we're about to see what's going to happen. Um, we're just shocked again because of the economic meltdown, as everybody mentioned. I would caution, though, a little bit to look at the numbers from a historical perspective, because there's never been anything like this in history. So for us to go and say, this is a higher unemployment than the 6% in the big, we just don't know what that looks like. We don't know what a economic repression, uh, intentional, looks like, you know, from a coming back story. We just don't know what that looks like. So I would be a little bit more cautious on that front. Um, but one thing that this has highlighted and bringing back to the financial services and banking is the importance of the banking system as it acted as a very effective vehicle for implementation of policy. And, and I think the banks have done a pretty good job, you know, under the circumstances, pulling things off that they were absolutely not prepared for um, under such short notice. And I think. A lot goes to that, and this is why we've seen an increase. First of all, the, their their ability to distribute funding, but then an, an increase in digital, as you mentioned, uh, just a story for city. But all the banks have seen that. Um, they've also seen an increase in u- utilization of underutilized assets, that like you know, depositing your check with taking a picture and all these sort of other things. So there's huge transformation that's happening here. I don't think. I mean, I don't know if it's all doom and gloom coming out of this. We'll see. Um, this is August, as you mentioned, would be a good time to look at.
0: Yeah, I think August is the benchmark. Um, you know what, what's what's very curious, and one thing we've seen is, I know the the large banks have seen a, an incredible amount of deposits going in, but we've seen a lot of people also signing up for the challenger banks that have you know come in the U.S. So, like Current as a challenger bank um, in in the U.S. saw its highest. Growth numbers in April and May, they added over 100,000 new members. That means it's now past 1 million. And um, that pure mobile banking play, we've seen Chime, Ramp. Um, there's even a LGBTQ-specific bank money that are all being launched. So it's fascinating to see those. But what I'm curious about, and I'm going to use the term, and Erica might cringe, but I'm going to go there. Because we have Jillian in New York, you know, David, you're in London, um, Gertie in Toronto. But, but uh, Erica, you're in flyover country. I apologize for that term. But that's that's a that makes sense. Right. You are here in Oklahoma City and um, the heart of the U.S., if you will. And there's there's actually a good book called Flyover Country that I recommend everyone read. Um, so I'm curious, one, are you seeing an uptick of folks, you know, in the Oklahoma space that are kind of jumping onto to uh, these challenger banks and, and two, what you're seeing, the, the economic impact of uh, what we're going through in, in Oklahoma City? Well,
2: how much time do we have?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, I'll give you an hour. You know, we'll go long. So. <laughs> um,
2: first of all, in terms of, um, I actually don't shy away from saying the flyover country because for years, I personally been talking about how the markets, um, technology, it's influencing a lot of the polarization that we're actually seeing in our country uh, because a lot of the people in the middle of the country feel left out. Um, either feel left out or were intentionally left out of important conversation uh, conversations happening in DC, and or if we're talking about the financial markets, you know, venture, for example, seventy eight percent of venture capital it's spent in uh, you know Silicon Valley, New York, and Massachusetts. Um, so are they are there people trying to uh, challenge? Yes. Uh, But I think it's going to require more efforts. You you can't just pigeonhole the or or you can't to to solve a problem like this and to really recover. I think it's going to require um, startups, entrepreneurs, but also policymakers um, to to understand one of the challenges. I mean, you started with, you know, deposits, bank deposits and, and all of that. But that doesn't mean anything for the economy. It doesn't it doesn't really tell us. um, I would rather see, well, how much, you know, tell me about the lending. Um, Are are projects being put on hold uh, with commercial lending or personal lending? Um, I, I just fundamentally think that so often both politicians and the media focus on the wrong things. We measure our economy on how the stock market is doing, even though 50% of Americans don't have stocks. And like some of you mentioned, not even a savings account. Um, we measure things like, you know, how are our banking institutions doing, not necessarily uh, the people. Um, there are actually a lot of people in, in my home state uh, that are not doing very well, and they are getting evicted already. Um, our uh, unemployment, Uh, benefits. um, In fact, we're on the news today and yesterday, because there's lines of people that are still waiting to get their, um, their checks, unemployment benefits checks. Um, And then we have politicians saying, we don't need any more stimulus money, both for PPP or for personal loans. So there's just a huge disconnect. And I think it's because we silo ourselves. um, you know, we're either entrepreneurs or we're venture capitalists or we're politicians. We're not talking to each other. <laughs> and that's when you have things like policy flops, um, you know, which hopefully we won't see with this thing that happened uh, with Wirecard, where the politicians are putting together policy, uh, policies that really don't affect um, people or, or don't benefit people.
0: Yeah. Again, I highly recommend that book, Flyover Country. I'm glad you embraced that term. Um, if you want to know what the effects are of ignoring a market, um, you can go back to an election cycle in 2016, um, which has global implications. People, I don't, I don't know what else to say. It really does. Um, it is interesting. What I want to leave this on a, a last note because uh, I, I think in a does deserve a shout out. So we can talk about Citibank. They launched a marketing campaign in May, um, ended up gaining the bank 270 thousand new online accounts. For existing customers who had zero prior online presence with the bank. So I think the shift into digital banking habits, we're seeing it change rapidly. We saw a massive uptick in online and, and um, online retail purchases. I mean, Jillian, you touched on that. Um, I mean, I, I, if I remember right, um, from a retail sales standpoint, we saw 17.7% in May so uh, in, in the U.S., right? So this shift to it, I think part of that was pent-up frustration. Folks so bored of being locked up in their homes, been able a chance to go out. But I mean, the reality is in the U.S., uh, we, we didn't flatten a curve. <laughs> go look at any chart. That's all I'll say when, when it comes to COVID and what its impacts are. I'll, I will say um, I would, again, just look to August. I think most of us would agree August is a good benchmark for maybe what the rest of the year is going to look like into 2021. Um, basically, I, I think what we definitely need from a fintech standpoint for any of you that are contemplating um, starting a company or out there in the space, uh, to Erica's point, let's make sure it works in New York, in San Francisco, in Chicago, in Tulsa, in Iowa, in Kansas City, down here in Jacksonville. Um, we'll adopt it. We'll use it if if it meets our needs. And and with that, we got to go on to the next story. We we could stay on this one all day. Um, a third one. We're going to talk about gold, the global payment space because it has been significantly heating up. There's so many moves in the global payments card provider space that we had a We want to touch. On this week. So that includes MasterCard is going to purchase open banking company Finicity for $825 million. Verizon's new Visa card gives wireless customers more ways to save. Samsung reveals the new Samsung pay card, which is powered by Curve. Well done, Curve. Brex is hitting <laughs> a team up with Apple. Um, MasterCard. Let's let's talk, let's break those stories down just a little bit. We'll touch with MasterCard's purchase of Tennessee's technologies. Say it will strengthen its open banking capabilities, helping give customers more control of their financial data as they link up with third parties that um, rely on banking information. For those that aren't familiar, uh, you had Visa acquired Plaid um, for, I believe, about $5 billion. So now you got MasterCard uh, acquiring uh, Finicity, well done there for almost a million. That pretty much leaves MX, love the team out in Utah, um, as probably an acquisition target, and Lee but they were already acquired before. And whenever I say Lee that's like talking about my uncle Ben back in... <laughs> been around forever today good on you old yodely love you but uh anybody surprised that mastercard made this move
4: i i'm not at all i think they probably right after the acquisition of plaid by visa started to think about what their response could be to kind of stay in in the race uh and so i think they were probably going to make some acquisition and so they were just taking the time to figure out who was the best and probably what price was going to make the most sense for them as well
0: yeah so gertie what do you think
3: I mean, MasterCard has been active in this space for a long time. Yeah. I mean, their own platform in Europe now with the acquisition, they want to go global with it. Um, but ultimately what this is, is to create a data strategy, right? A data strategy that creates some sort of a price, uh, privacy preserving customer uh, engagement. So that's, What this does, it enriches the data systems uh, that MasterCard or these companies sort of have in place in order to create a a practice that protects the data, but also creates a growth, another growth uh, trajectory for the firm.
0: Yeah, I'm just waiting for the announcement of Amex and... I mean, MX, the letters are already there, people. I'm just saying. I I sent an email to Ryan Caldwell, the founder of it, who's a good friend, and I'm saying, dude, just remember me when you're living on the beach in Hawaii, which will never leave Utah, by the way. Why would you? If you've been to Utah, it's beautiful. The news about um, Verizon I found interesting. So we're back to, if you all remember, back around 2010 and 11, the telecoms and payments was everything, right? Um, the incredibly um, uh, well-named uh, confederation of telecoms, uh, for a card called ISIS, which then they quickly pivoted to Softcard or Softbank or Ice Cream or whatever the hell they could change it to, because it would not be ISIS. By the way, I'm old enough; I worked on that. Just going to throw that out there. You know, I think I have a T-shirt somewhere that I've never worn out. <laughs> it actually says ISIS on it. Um, poor them. But again, this this you know this announcement that they're going to add a Verizon a, a Verizon Visa card to its portfolio of products. So the new credit card. We'll give an additional 2% back on purchases and payments made through Verizon and giving discounts on wireless charges. I mean, they're the latest tech company to jump into the world of finance. You had an Apple Card with Goldman Sachs. I mean, David, you're infinitely familiar with that story. The Google Card that's coming out, you got the Samsung Pay Card, um, which has been on the shelf for a while. Amazon launching credit lines for SB Sun and its marketplace. And Facebook launched uh, WhatsApp payments in Brazil last week, which, by the way, story today, the Brazilian government shut that down. <laughs> you got to feel for Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg's on vacation right now. And he's like, damn it. Are you kidding me? Because he had a good headline last week and now he's back to this. Uh, you know, the one of those that really stands out to me, David, is the Amazon um, SMB loans with Goldman Sachs, man. I, I love that play.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's, I mean, it's facilitating people doing the things that they want. And and actually, I mean, we've seen Amazon as a good distribution point for loans for, for quite a few years now, haven't we? I mean, yeah. all of this, I mean, these, these Verizon, Samsung, Apple, like, you know, I mean, the sort of fabled demise of, uh, of of banks by bigger players coming into the uh, the market is is really coming to bear, isn't it? You know, we're seeing big players coming in and doing interesting things, and, and do you know, what? I, I I do worry what this spells for like long term business models of many of the banks. If I'm honest with you, because I don't think it's necessarily just a Disintermediation, but the the impact that it has when other people start distributing products rather than you uh, on the way in which you manufacture those products and the the cost efficiencies that you expect from those products, it really does have a very very significant impact on those things. So uh, it's going to be very very interesting to see how this one plays out, right? Everything can be uh, everything can be financial services. It seems. Go ahead, John. I
4: think one of the trends that. We, along with a a lot of other investors early this sort of predictions for 2020 um, was a sort of move into sort of everyone trying to offer a credit card. And I think that's part of, as you said, Sam, sort of the thesis around everyone wanting to be a fintech. Plus, also, as you said, everybody loves credit cards in the U.S. Um, And so... And that's where you make a lot more money. You don't make a ton of money on deposits and on debit cards, but you make a lot more on uh, the APRs of credit cards. And so enabling others to offer these different types of branded cards and things like that, and everyone's really on the cash back side, um, I think it's just become a bigger and bigger trend. And I think to Amazon point, uh, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And you see Shopify announcing that in terms of all of their sort of move into finance that they've done in the last month, um, also being able to do that for their platform and just continuing to embed financial services products and offerings into other distribution points, I think is definitely where we see a lot of fintech going. Um, Obviously, at some point, there's card fatigue and even though people love credit cards, like how many I might get them all, but then how many of them am I actually using? I think I have the Apple card and I've maybe used it twice. Um, but like, why not? Like, if any additional person you can get, especially if someone who's going to rack up some debt, um, is beneficial to these and helps get different uh, revenue streams as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Gertie, you have a thought on that? Yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, this.
3: In my opinion, uh, big tech moving into banking highlights the importance, we touched upon this a little bit before with MasterCard News, but around the importance of data. There's very, very important data in the financial services that so far big tech has not had access to. And this is where it is going to become interesting, where the banks have to use a very important asset of theirs, which has become even more important now, which is trust. And you saw Facebook was shut down because of a general perception of a lack of trust. Um, Whether it's true or not, I mean, it's just what it is. Um, But trust is a very important weapon in the side of banks that this time around had an opportunity to be heroes versus villains in 2008. And they can sort of really leverage the trust anchor to become, in, my, in our opinion, data vaults and sort of, instead of money vaults and utilize that concept to create new business models that will make them relevant for many, many years to come. This is what we're seeing right now. And it's just my opinion as to how there could be some techniques that could be leveraged by using what you're strong at.
0: I love doing podcasts on zoom because I'm like pointing at people, which means absolutely nothing. (laughs) And it always makes me laugh, but Erica, I'm pointing right at you. So go ahead, jump in.
2: Um, Actually, I just have more of a question to all of you. How do you think this dynamic is actually going to affect community banks? And right now we're also having a big conversation around equity, right? And, and money going to entrepreneurs of color and women, um, how, how does this affect any of that?
0: Oh, my God. My hand went up to raise like crazy because I want to touch on this. If I'm a community bank and I saw this deal by Amazon and Goldman Sachs, um, I probably got my resume looking much, much better uh, right now. I think there's two things going on at, at smaller banks and even mid-tier on down. You're doing two things. You're either looking how you can partner incredibly well with companies uh, to get great digital offerings out the door. You know, we talked about Jack Henry. By the way, Jack Henry does a great job. Bano is a great product, right? But I'm looking at my service providers and saying, all right, time to step up, right? How, What are you going to do to differentiate me and how are you going to do that? Or they're making their books look as good as possible so they can be acquired. I think that's it. Or maybe three, they're buying a retirement home down here in Florida. So maybe three things. How's that? I think three things are happening in the smaller tier of banks. So that's my own opinion. Jillian, what about you? What do you think?
4: Yeah, I think we're also seeing a big trend of some startups partner with them and use them yeah. for their balance sheet. We have one portfolio company called Happy Money based in Southern California. And sort of when they pivoted to sort of partnering with community banks, like that helped their business grow significantly. Um, and so I think there's a huge opportunity for these banks that they just need to sort of figure out how to take hold of is that like they have these they have these charters, they have the capital, and a lot of these fintechs don't have either of that and, and need that. Um, and so I think you'll see that probably a lot more from from the smaller and growing startups rather than from obviously the large tech companies. But I think there's a huge opportunity there for them as well.
0: Yeah, Curdy?
3: Yeah. So one thing that we see right now, which is exactly around the first point. I cannot comment on the Florida house or the other stuff, but Around the first point, we see the community banks, sort of we're partnering with them very effectively to elevate them at the experience level, which is not only comparable, but maybe disrupt back into some of what's coming their way, but also use their, as I mentioned, the trust factor and the community understanding coupled with the digital experience. I just think digital experiences are much easier to achieve than trust. And so I don't just dust that resume just yet. I think the fight is not over. There is a lot that can be done very quickly, very effectively.
0: Yeah, and Erica, aren't you on the board of a bank or two? By the way, is that is that accurate?
3: Just one, Arvest.
0: Yeah, one's okay. So there you go. So what do you think about this?
2: I mean, you know what I worry about most, um, and I agree. I mean, we're seeing bank uh, community banks that are doing great work. Um, partnering with, with uh, startups, and that's great fintechs. I guess where I worry the most is when we, uh, obviously, since we work with startups, you know, we know that less than 1% of startups ever raise venture capital because not every startup is venture backable. <laughs> um, we also know that 80% of those startups are also not um, getting loans, Um and, and that's because, you know, having a loan that's less than $100,000 to get your startup going. So I'm talking very early stages. Now, I'm not talking about venture back companies. You know, getting that first access to capital is so critical. But community banks continue to be acquired. They can't no longer make a loan that's less than $100,000, sometimes, you know, profitable. And so we are seeing the complete you know, demolition of community banks. And I worry, most of my worry is that early, very, very early stage capital, who takes care of that, particularly when it comes to communities of color or um, underrepresented markets. Um, And that's where I would love to see, I mean, these partnerships sound great. Everything sounds great. I just, I do worry about the early, very early stage venture. Um, It's sexy to talk about venture capital, um, nobody's talking and, and look at our main street, look how uh, our main street businesses are doing. Um, and I worry that nobody's talking about them. How are we going to help them?
0: And we saw that with the PPP program, uh, to be, to be blunt. Um, again, if you were, if you were doing pretty well, you know, you did all right. But even, even the, the loan amounts that the government had set, you know, 500,000 and a hundred thousand. And in the reality is these companies needed 15 grand, 20 grand. You know, we're talking one or two mom or pop shops. Hey, David, I'm curious because we're, we're, we're slamming all about the U.S. right now. What, what's the equivalency of this like in the U.K.?
1: I mean, in terms of the squeeze on the, the community banks, then, I mean, it's essentially something that we've seen with building societies here. Um, I mean, the sad sort of end to that story from a U.K. perspective is the big guys bought all of the building societies and the building societies became just outreaches for, for banks. And I think there's actually a lot of uh, potential for that to be the case, because in any time where uh, businesses start to do difficult, it's the people with all of the investment potential that come out of this on top. And arguably, the bigger banks get bigger and the smaller banks get squeezed out, which is is a very difficult reality to face into when community and everything that's required around community is probably more needed than ever before
0: that was me sighing uh i think this is going to be a little bit of a wait and see Um, uh, you know we kind of faced this in 2008 i'll give you guys everyone a quick example and then i'll move on to our next section but um in georgia Uh, when, uh, we had the market crash and the real estate market crash, it devastated the community banking space because the community banks were the ones that were lending to the construction companies that were building new homes. And when the real estate market fell, the Georgia had the highest number of bank failures in the country because of that. Um, so, and I said, I wanted to get the last point. I know David's going to make it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think the, the really difficult with the difficult thing with this one is like local communities really want to support local community operations and organizations and actually you're the squeeze that you're seeing is with with people these are real people and therefore they're going to do the thing that is best for them at that stage and as much as people will want to support community outreach and they'll want to support community uh, organizations then at the end of the day if i mean if amazon comes in with a rate that you can't uh, these people just can't compete with it can be so difficult for for consumers to make a, a altruistic uh, decision in terms of these things and that that's the really really hard thing about it is you you see these businesses get driven out of business because um, you know the the economies of scale that can be brought with these things is is really significant and I, and i guess the challenge to that really is is that the difference from a, a rates and a service and everything perspective from the big banks to the community banks uh, has not been so dramatically different that they couldn't keep an arm in that fight but when you get technology players coming in with all the advancements that they can drive uh, and at scale even bigger than some of the bigger banks uh, you know it's a really it's an unfair fight I think in a lot of instances but I think to, to Gertie's point I think there are places that they can fight back but um, it's going to take a pretty impressive strategy to to, to weather that storm.
0: Now, I'm uh, talking about pretty impressive I now have a segment that I have two minutes to do Three stories in two minutes. David, rapid fire, man. Ready? Down that uh, Monster Energy drink. Here we go. Three in two minutes. Checkout.com triples valuation to $5.5 billion, making it one of Europe's top fintechs. And a continuation of the payments provider theme this episode. Checkout.com has seen its valuation almost triple in a Series B funding round led by technology-focused hedge fund Cotia. Cotia? Hey, guys. Call me. Tell me how to say your name. For anyone unfamiliar with them, the London-based company sells a software platform that makes it easier for businesses to process and take payments over the web. It competes with likes of U.S. firm Stripe and Dutch processor Adian. The startup has achieved impressive growth over the last year, increasing transaction volume by 250% and picking up big-name clients. It's now tied with Sweden's Klarna, wow, and Britain's Revolut as Europe's most valuable fintech startup. This is in direct counter to Monzo's drop in valuation last week following their latest funding Banks are dropping their valuations while service providers are on the up. Oh, David, thoughts on this?
1: Uh, I mean, again, look, anybody can be financial services in a very broad sense, but um, it's it's super interesting. The fact that they're that scale and being considered at the same size as uh, people like Revolut right now is pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, I, I completely Completely agree. Good on them. And by the way, Klarna, killing it. I don't know if people have seen some of their earnings lately. All right, next story. We touched on this before. Brazil's central bank ices Facebook's WhatsApp payment services after we covered the Brazilian rollout of WhatsApp pay excitedly on last week's show. This week, it's slightly less positive news. I like that. That was that was very um, well put, slightly less positive. The central bank of Brazil has suspended Facebook's WhatsApp payment service within 10 days of its rollout, citing competition issues in the mobile payment space that was the most british sounding phrase ever slightly less positive in a statement the central bank said it was taking the decision to preserve an adequate competitive environment and to ensure functioning of a payment system that is interchangeable and that is secure transparent open and cheap the injunction demands that visa mastercard suspend launching payments and transfers on whatsapp or cease such operations immediately the central bank also stated that it hadn't had the opportunity to analyze the p2p messaging system in advance of its rollout my two cents on this um, rolling out to a new jail, new country ain't easy. I know that doesn't flow like Jay-Z does in his songs, but hell, I'm going with it. It ain't easy. All right, next one, Robinhood. They had another outage following a tumultuous week. On Thursday, it's resolved an issue that had caused a major outage on its platform early in the day, provoking negative sentiment from users on social media. Robinhood has experienced several outages since early March, particularly on days of high trading volumes as the market reacted to news On the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They've also had a challenging week following the suicide of one of their users, a young college student, citing confusion with the Robinhood product as a reason for his actions and prompting questions about the social responsibility of such platforms to look after the users. The co-founders responded on their website with a heartfelt message and a focus to improve their platform, committing to reviewing additional eligibility criteria, educational resources, and user experience improvements and cleaning up user comms to avoid such confusion. They're also making a two hundred fifty thousand dollar donation to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, David, I don't know what really to say on this story.
1: I mean, it's it's horrible. I mean, nobody's creating an interface thinking that interface might lead to somebody committing suicide. And I think actually the you know the responsibility, as you say on that, has got to be people have got to start thinking these things through such wild swings, particularly when it comes to investment stuff is, is going to happen to a certain degree, given the climate that we're in and, you know, managing those messages and, uh, being very, very sensitive to that. Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure a 250,000 pound donation to a fund right now is the, there's, it's almost, you know, paying reparation for the, for the issue that was kind of caused. And it, it just feels a bit odd to me, but, um, hopefully they learn from this and, uh, maybe sort of tightening up some of the processes in terms of what people can do and access to funds and the way people invest. Um, and maybe some of the messages in around, I mean, banks have been good at this for a long time in terms of all of your capital is at risk. But really evidencing that with people in these services is going to be really
0: important. Yeah, there's, there's going to be, a, I think, a lot of downstream lessons learned um, from this instance. And finally, one more story. Zopa. Um, Zopa Prime's credit card is a long-awaited full banking license has been granted. Some 18 months after entering the mobilization stage of getting his banking license, UK P2P lender Zopa has finally been awarded its full license. The news this morning means the alternative lender, and now bank, can push ahead with this plan to launch a fixed-term savings account of between one to five years. As well as a fixed-term saver, Zopa said is working on an innovative credit card to come out later in the year. With few details in the credit card revealed, Zopa did say that it will address the needs of its consumers who have had to put up with poor services and unclear pricing from their existing card providers. These new lending and saving products will sit alongside Zopa's peer-to-peer offering a personal loan, and all alone, but operate under Zopa Bank rather than Zopa Limited. We'll bring you more on this as it unfolds, especially around the innovative credit card. David, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Zopa has been around for like 15, 18 years, right? They're they're not new. Yeah.
1: OG P2P, uh, 2005, 2006, I think they were kind of gen- uh, put around. But um, yeah, we'll get Giles on to talk about what they're doing and
0: uh, how it's working. Yeah, I think it took at least three years, by the way, to get that license granted, which is on par with what um, borrow money went through here in the U.S. All right, and finally, our last story, and great to bring our guests in this one. I'd love to get their opinion on this story. Uh, Goldman's traders mock the CEO's cringeworthy cameo on a TV show, Billions. So the Financial News reported the story. Goldman Sachs has been on a massive push to win over Main Street consumers with his online platform, Marcus. Even Chief Executive David Solomon is chipping in to help out on the marketing front. Solomon, who moonlights as DJ D Soul. Appeared on Showtime's Billions. I'm sorry, I was trying to keep the laughter in. The television show drama series, which depicts life among high flying hedge fund executives in New York, Chief Executive David Solomon, DJ D Soul, rebuffed the main characters' offer to buy Goldman Sachs' Marcus online banking product. The reaction in the office has been hasn't really been great. With the traders calling the performance cringe worthy. Um, look, I like Mark Cuban. I've seen Mark Cuban on that show plenty of times. Cuban's a horrible actor. I haven't seen the one with david solomon so i can only guess how bad this was but uh david when are you going to go on a tv show just ask me uh, pfft,
1: definitely not my acting skills are definitely not uh not going to be there although based on the clips i've seen of this then it's um it's not a prerequisite is it but uh yeah it's a it's a pretty difficult one I, I mean it's always like i guess very large amounts of money can buy your way onto any program at that stage so uh what i mean what what show if you could be on any show what show would you make a cameo on sam
0: Oh, my God. You really went there with me? Yeah. That I mean, be I a cameo I, on any show. I, you know what I would have said? Um, Anthony Bourdain's anything Anthony Bourdain was on because he's a hero of mine. Unfortunately, he's no longer alive. But any show that Anthony Bourdain did um, just to sit down with Anthony Bourdain at a Waffle House and have him describe the process of the meal. That's what show I would be on. All right. So now that, that's the question of the day. All right. So y'all better be creative. And we're doing *Inimitable*? Julian, if you get be on one show, what would it be?
4: I think, and maybe this is because I, I recently finished the series, but *Shit's Creek*.
0: Oh my god, I love that show, David! All right, that was my imitation. It was really bad. For the three of you that know what I'm talking about, Erica, no pressure. One show.
2: Grace and Frankie, no question. Oh, that's a good show.
0: Look at you coming in sideways on that one. Very good, very good show. All right, Gertie's like, oh hell, hockey night in Canada um Premier League football
3: uh I don't know how I'll pull this off but I mean you know I like the British show uh, Peaky Blinders
0: oh I love Peaky Blinders you would be good y'all cannot see Gertie but Gertie would look so good as a 1920s gangster in Birmingham England great show I love Peaky Blinders that was a good answer um all right David I'm going to circle back to you
1: I mean, for me, it'd have to be Sopranos. I think go old school. I mean, like if you if you want to know how to get business done, lots of good pastor in there as well. Like I, it's got to be the Sopranos.
0: Good for you. Okay, there we go, folks. And and what a way to wrap up a show. I love it. So any talent agents out there that are desperately looking for guests on any of your show, um, I will go with Gertie. I will play Gertie's like concierge or something like that. Concierge, how do you say that in Italian for the mob? I, that's what I would be, Gertie. So that would be my role. I, I can feel it on Shit's Creek. Oh my God. Just any role. I don't care. It's one of the best series I've ever done. Everybody, um, by Canadians, by the way, Eugene Levy and David Levy. Um, some love for Canada there. All right, folks, that wraps up this week's new show. We want to thank every single one of our guests. Where can people find out more about you and about your company? So Erica, what about you and what about stitch crew? Uh,
2: www.stitchcrew.com.
0: All right, Julian, over to you. What about you? If they want to get in contact with you?
4: Yeah, either um, Anthemist.com or on Twitter at Jill Will NYC.
0: And finally, Gertie, what about you?
4: Um,
3: info at FlyBiz.com or it's my first name, last name at
0: FlyBiz.com if you want to get to me directly. All right. And David, let me guess, LinkedIn. Go ahead, David. Where's the best place to get in contact with you?
1: You can find me almost permanently at LinkedIn these days.
0: And if you want to, uh, I'm going to encourage David to update his LinkedIn profile pic with the beard that he has sported since COVID. Um, Simon Taylor is somewhere in that beard. His beard is so thick, Simon could hide in that thing. As for me, Sam all on Twitter, uh, Sam at 11FS.com, ping me on LinkedIn, fly down to Florida. I'm bored. Take me out to eat. I mean, we can go to Applebee's. I'll I'll get you, you know, I'll get you the tacos. They're pretty good, some nachos. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. Five stars, please. If you don't want to leave us a five-star review, I'll give you some other podcasts that you can go out and get reviews on them it helps us to make it much better it also helps others find the show speaking of which if you know someone who loves fintech who isn't listening to fintech insider be a friend of the pod passing along tell them about the show if you have any suggestions or feedback find us on social media just search for 11fs or fintech insider or email podcast at 11fs.com everybody thanks for being on the show everyone else thanks for listening